Hello, everyone, and welcome to Myth in the Mojave, 30 minutes of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your personal mythologist, Catherine Savela. Wherever you may be in this wide, beautiful, crazy world of ours, you are part of this story circle. What is there in thee, moon, that thou shouldst move my heart so potently? Those are words I'm borrowing from the poet Keats, and I want to use them to wish you a happy new year. I want to kick off 2018 with a few thoughts and stories about one of the best events of the year, in my opinion, which was the full moon that came up on New Year's Day. That full moon, called a super moon, was absolutely glorious here in the Mojave, it's called a supermoon because it was a moon that rose here at its closest point in its orbit. And at the times that the moon is close, it appears bigger and brighter to us down here on Earth. You know, we're going to have two moons, two full moons in January. We're going to have another one on January 31st, which is also a supermoon. And because it's the second full moon in the month, it's also going to be a blue moon. As in, once in a blue moon, things don't don't happen very often. (laughs) I can think of a few things that haven't happened in a while that I'd like to see happen. We get a blue moon every two and a half years. The last one was uh, summer of 2015 sometime in this Blue moon, super moon on the 31st is extra special because it's also going to be part of a total lunar eclipse. That makes it a blood moon, and we call that a blood moon because it appears red as it passes through the Earth's shadow. Now, all of this lunar activity right at the beginning of the year has motivated me to want to tell you a story about the moon. It's a Chinese story about the woman in the moon, and her name is Chong Yi. Now, Chong Yi is a rather central goddess in Chinese mythology, and there are quite a few stories about her. The lunar exploration, the aircraft that the Chinese sent up when they were first sent something to orbit the moon, was named after her, which seems pretty fitting under the circumstances. So now I invite you to sit back and relax and enjoy the story. The story of Chong Yi, the moon goddess, or rather the woman on the moon. The gods lived together in the heavenly realms, and there was a little bit of a problem with the sun god D. June's sons. D. June had nine sons, sons in the sense of children and sons in the sense of hot stars in the sky. And these sons decided to scorch the earth. This was a serious problem and breach in the relationship between the gods in that heavenly realm and the beings on earth. And D. June 
asked the other gods for help in stopping his sons. Well, the hero god, an archer named Hao-Wi, answered the call and he shot down the nine sons. Di Jun had expected Hao-Wi to merely discipline his sons, not to actually kill them. And so he was pretty upset when this happened and decided to banish Howie to Earth. Now, Howie didn't mind too terribly much because he was regarded as a hero on Earth. And this might actually bring about a little bit better life condition from, for him. But Howie's wife, Chong Yi, was not happy about being exiled onto the earth. She was very lonely for her sister goddesses, and she missed the luxuries of heaven. Chang'e was angry at her husband for jeopardizing their social status, uprooting her from her familiar surroundings, and so even though the couple loved each other very deeply, they took to quarreling seriously, and often. Now, in order for the gods to keep their bodies in perfect condition, every 3,000 years, they each had to eat the peach of long life and drink the elixir of immortality. This This elixir was made from the peaches grown in the Garden of the Western Paradise, and this garden was tended by the Queen Mother, Wang Mu. She was an old woman, rather scary-looking. She had the fangs of a tiger, for example, and she lived all alone, where she was protected, she and her garden, by birds of prey, raptors, all kinds of fearsome, predatory animals. But despite her frightening appearance, and her many powers. Wang Mu was the queen mother. She was a motherly figure to all of the gods in heaven. Every 3,000 years, Wang Mu went into her enchanted garden where these coveted peaches were growing, and she picked them and served them at a sumptuous banquet for the gods. She was also an alchemist or what we would even call a witch, someone who could combine various substances to make potions that would transform. And Wang Mu also mixed magic potions and elixirs, including that immortality elixir that was required by all of the gods. This fabled garden of the Western Paradise is thought to have been in a very remote section of the Kunlun Mountains in China, way off in western China, somewhere near Tibet. Now, one of the problems that Howie and Chong Yi faced as a matter of living on Earth is they were not present for the banquet and the ritual eating of the peaches, and the drinking of the elixir of immortality. And after they had been on earth for a while, they started to lose some of their physical vitality. 
they started to lose some of their physical beauty. And it was clear that somehow or another, they were going to have to replenish their immortal selves in order to continue. Howie loved his wife very much, and he had some concern for his own well-being, and so he set out on a journey to the Kunlun Mountains and the Enchanted Garden and the peaches grown by Wang Mu. He didn't really know the way. He got weaker and weaker and weaker as he walked. But eventually, eventually, how we made it to the garden. He had to cross burning deserts. He had to ford cold streams. He had to trek over high mountains for thousands of miles. And when he got there, he was exhausted and tired. Wang Mu greeted him warmly. But when Hui told her that he was there to get a dosage of the elixir of immortality for himself and his wife, she sighed. Unfortunately, Hui, she said, the other gods and goddesses just feasted on the last batch of peaches, and I'm not going to have any more for another 3,000 years. The peaches are all gone. Oh, no, said Howie. Well, there has to be something that you can do. I mean, we're not going to last for another 3,000 years, Queen Mother. Please, please, please help us. And as Howie continued to implore her, Wang Mu looked around through all of her baskets and bins. She felt around in the nooks and crannies of all of her storage rooms, and she finally found one leftover, one bruised, dried-up peach. Not really prime material for an elixir of immortality, but nevertheless, because she had nothing else to work with, she pounded it together with some herbs and powders and made him a small dose of the necessary elixir. Wang Mu poured this precious liquid into a small vial and handed it to Howie. This potion, she said, will take both of you to the heavens. But it's not, it's not up to my usual standards. And so you got to make sure that you drink it on a clear night. Wait until there is a clear night, or else you could be trapped halfway between earth and heaven. Howie nodded. He understood the directions. He carefully put the vial in his leather pouch, knotted the bag tightly around his waist, and once again he trudged back over the high, thousands of miles high mountains, forded those cold streams, crossed the burning deserts, and got back home to his wife, Chong'e. When he had lived in heaven, he realized he hadn't really cared very much about the comforts and the luxuries that he enjoyed. Because he was in service to the gods, 
He'd been invited to all of the feasts. He'd eaten the peach of immortality. He'd never really ever thought about it too much. Never really considered how much that magical potion enhanced his powerful body and made him invincible. But on that long, tiring trek, he became very aware of the degree to which his powers were slipping away. And while he didn't really resent his banishment on earth, he really did start to resent his decaying mortal body. And he felt a new burst of sympathy for his wife, who had never acclimated herself happily to earth and desperately longed to be back in the heavens. When Howie finally got home and he presented the precious elixir to his wife, Chong Yi was delighted. She hugged him and kissed him. She bathed his tired feet. And all the while, through every action, she burned, burned with the anticipation of returning to her sisters in the sky. We must do this immediately, she said, as soon as she had cleaned him up and provided some refreshment. We've got to go back to heaven immediately. I have longed for this for days. But how we refused. No, we have to wait, he said. I have made this long journey to fulfill your deepest desire. And now we have to be patient. We have to be patient and wait for a clear night, just like the Queen Mother Wang Mu said, a clear night when the stars can guide us home. Chongyi had to agree that her husband's reasoning was good, and of course the warning did come from a very powerful goddess. But her desire to be reunited with her sisters was far stronger than her appreciation of this logic. The next day, Howie left for his daily hunt, and all day long the goddess sat and stared at that vial of elixir. The day wore on, and still she sat staring, consumed with her longing to be back with her sisters in heaven. Day turned into night, and the hours passed, and how we did not return. Now, this happened often. He was a hunter, and he could go out and get caught up in the hunt and be gone for days. And not only did tracking the animals take a long time, but how we often stopped to talk with his neighbors. He often gave them generous portions of the deer and the rabbit and the duck from his hunt. And so Chong Yi had spent some other lonely nights waiting for her husband's return. This apparently was going to be another one. Chong Yi sighed. She knew by the smell of the elixir that it was already a bit diluted. She'd taken the top off and given it a little sniff earlier in the day, and she did this again, sitting alone in the dark. Hmm. Yeah, it definitely did not smell the way that it should. 
The dosage must be very weak, she thought. The dosage must be very weak. And how we, my husband, is probably not going to recover his full strength by drinking his portion. And I am probably not going to regain my full beauty by drinking mine either. In fact, I don't know if if this little vial of this weak potion is going to be able to get us to heaven. And then what? What happens if the contents of this vial isn't strong enough to revive either of us, let alone propel us on this journey that I have in mind? Well, Chang'e dwelt on these various fears and speculations, and then she developed a plan. She decided that she would drink both of the portions. If she drank both of the portions, then she could make it to heaven. And once she got to heaven, she would go straight away to Dijun, the sun god, and beg him, absolutely beg him, throw herself at his feet and ask him to forgive her husband for his brashness in having shot down and killed the nine sons. And then she and her sister goddesses could borrow some sky dragons, go back to the queen mother in the western paradise, and she would just simply persuade her to mix up another dose of elixir exclusively for Howie so that he could join his wife in heaven. Yes, she determined this is the only way that it would possibly work. This is the only way that they could both get all that they needed. Chang'e took the lid off the vial and smelled it again. She lifted it to her lips and drank it down. As soon as she swallowed it, she felt a bitterness burn in her throat. And immediately, her body became lighter and lighter. She felt a little bit dizzy. And yes, her feet were lifting off of the ground. Quickly, she moved herself out of the door and into the night. And there, unencumbered by walls or ceiling, her body began to float upward towards the stars. Unfortunately, though, this was not a clear night. Howie was just returning home when he saw his wife drifting up to the sky. He grabbed a bow and arrow and thought about shooting her down, but he couldn't bring himself to do that. He called out to her and ran after her shadow that was drifting upwards like a lost balloon into the sky, but she was too far away to hear him. And unfortunately for Chang'e, although she did drift out of sight, she wandered among the stars and lost her way. And she finally came to rest, trapped on the cold moon. Down on earth, how we was heartbroken and wept for days. No one could console him. The gods up in the heavenly realms watched all of this. They saw Chong Yi 
trapped there on the moon, and they saw their former hero weeping down on earth. And they took pity on him. Howie had served the gods well. He had always done their bidding faithfully. And so they decreed that once a year, he would be granted the right to ascend to the skies to be with his wife. On that one night, the harvest moon, a supermoon that shines the brightest and fullest of the year, these two are united. And that beautiful moon reflects how we's love for Chong Yi. Now, Chong Yi does get lonely on the moon without her husband throughout the year, but apparently she has company. There is a jade rabbit who manufactures elixirs who also lives on the moon. And once I heard this story and started looking for the rabbit, I found him very easy to spot, so maybe you will too. There is another companion, according to this mythology, a woodcutter named Wu Gong. Now, I can't say that I've seen Wu Gong. Apparently, the woodcutter offended the gods in his attempt to achieve immortality, and he was banished onto the moon. And Wu Gong is allowed to leave if he can ever cut down a tree that grows there. The problem with this tree is that every time he chops it down, it instantly grows back. So I guess if you're condemned to live on the moon, you're condemned to live there for eternity. There are many stories about the moon as a place of exile, a place where there are dead spirits. And the man in the moon, which has become this very friendly face in children's books, the man in the moon is there because he is being punished for collecting wood on the Sabbath. This goes back to Hebrew mythologies and connections between the Sabbath, the word Sabbath, and the full moon, and the injunction to abstain from all secular activities during the Sabbath. When I look at the full moon, I think of Chong'e. I see the rabbit mixing the elixir of immortality, and it also brings a poem by Denise Levertov to mind. It's one of my favorites about the moon, titled Song for Ishtar, and it's found in a collection called O Taste and See. The moon is a sow and grunts in my throat. Her great shining shines through me, so the mud of my hollow gleams and breaks in silver bubbles. She is a sow, and I a pig and a poet. When she opens her white lips to devour me, I bite back, and laughter rocks the moon. In the black of desire, we rock and grunt, grunt and shine. The pig is an ancient animal associated with both the moon and the goddess. It's believed that the pig's habit of rooting around in the soil connected it to agriculture, which was once the domain of women. Pigs are sacrificial animals, intercessors between the living and the dead, and they have the capacity to recycle. I mean, pigs will eat almost anything. And I think we should ask ourselves why we denigrate this. It's not just pigs, it's all animals who have eating habits that we look down on. Animals and birds that eat carrion are another example. Why do we denigrate those who perform this most necessary function and show us a fundamental truth about life? In ancient Greek mythology, 
all of these themes, agriculture, life and death, the recycling, that is rebirth, all of these themes came together in a three-day harvest festival celebrated exclusively by women called the Theosmophoria. And this was a festival in honor of the goddess Demeter and her daughter Persephone. Persephone, as you may recall, is abducted by Hades and then becomes queen of the underworld. And she spends part of her time on earth and part of her time below ground. So one of the many meanings that can be attributed to this myth is the cycle of vegetation, the annual cycles of our earth. At the end of these Greek festivities, women and men made love in the furrowed fields, linking agricultural fertility, the inherent abundance of the earth, and human sexuality. And I hear that in Levertov's poem about rocking and grunting. For many of us, we live in cultures influenced by the classical mythologies and Judeo-Christian mythologies, And so we tend to see the moon as female, but it's not always many female, and there are many masculine moon gods. One example is the Hindu god Chandra, or Soma. He's young and gorgeous and rides in a chariot pulled by an antelope, and he's associated with Monday, the day Monday. I was thinking about him on New Year's, since New Year's Day was a Monday. But I found this interesting list of male moon gods in a fascinating book by Jules Cashford called The Moon, Myth and Image, which I want to share with you. She says, more generally, the moon was male for the Anu, Anatolians, Armenians, Southern Arabians, Australian Aboriginals, Balts, Basques, Canaanites, Eskimos, Finns, Germans, Georgians, Greenlanders, Hindus, Hittites, Hurrians, Japanese, Lithuanians, Melanesians, Mongolians, Persians, Phrygians, Poles, New Guineans, North American Indians of British Columbia, the Machavanga of Peru, Scandinavians, Slavs, Tartars, and many African tribes, among others. This gendering of the moon can be even more complicated, and hopefully we are learning a lot these days about the arbitrariness and fluidity of gender and cultural constructs of gender. In the case of the Egyptian god Osiris and the goddess Isis, for example, who is Osiris's wife and sister, they are both associated with the moon. And in the story that I have told um, on this program, You see themes of death and dismemberment and rebirth and reconstitution and fertility, all of which are mirrored by the moon as we observe it here on earth, the moon and the lunar cycle of waxing and waning. At the beginning of this program, I commented on this unusual confluence of lunar events And I wonder if the moon might symbolize hope for the resurgence of qualities associated with her hymn. Silvery coolness, fertile, life-giving waters, and refreshing dew, in contrast to the scorching and drying, relentless sun. The moon that moves in the womb of the oceans, the pearl of the sea. 
diffuse perceptions, reflection, nuances of shadow and darkness, the introduction of gray areas, and the softening of the hard edges of noontime consciousness, which is clarity for sure, but can also be brutal and cruel as the black-white dichotomies in meaning and morality that we are witnessing and experiencing today. How about a return of the power of the moon as the instigator of magic? Magic, which is at its heart a transformation of consciousness and ability to perceive things differently. The moon as muse, the source of poetry, feeling, and the lunacy of the lunar. That is the intuitive awareness and the so-called irrational, so-called irrational by our one-sided world with its fantasies of the linear and the logical, the productive and the rational. We are seeing the effects of this one-sidedness. And how about the moon of the imagination? I read those beautiful words from Keats earlier. For Yeats also, the moon is the catalyst of the imagination. In The Symbolism of Poetry, he writes, If I look at the moon herself and remember any of her ancient names and meanings, I move among divine people and things that have shaken off our mortality, the Tower of Ivory, the Queen of Waters, the Shining Stag among enchanted woods, the white hare sitting upon the mountaintop, the fool of fairy with his shining cup full of dreams, and it may be make a friend of one of these images of wonder and meet the Lord in the air. The sun and the moon, the yang and the yin, these are two ways of being, of seeing under the effect of their light. Alongside the absolute truth and ideals of solar consciousness, there is the moon and lunar consciousness, a consciousness that brings awareness of process, of becoming, that partakes of both light and dark. Regardless of gender identification, and what we assign to either of these celestial bodies, these are qualities that are essential to each of us in order for us to be complete. Could the moon symbolize our shared and more completely realized humanity, I wonder, in the year to come? That's it for me, Catherine Savela and Myth in the Mojave. Feel free to contact me if you have questions or comments about today's program. If you've enjoyed this program, I hope you'll share it with friends and family who might also find something in it. And if you are finding something of value in Myth and the Mojave, please join the community on Bandcamp so that you have free downloads and continuous streaming of everything new that I create and play an essential role in making future programs possible. Thank you so much for listening. Please tune in next time. And until then, happy mythmaking and keep the mystery in your life alive. <laughs>